Gentlemen, speaker, coming all the way from Santa Dimas. Her name is Santa Barbara. No, Barbara. Fontana. Fontana. Okay. Hey, there we go. Come on up, Barbara. Thank you. I gotta move this, I'm a shrimp. Um, my name is Barbara and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Barbara. And this is a meeting where I really don't know very many people, so I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> Anyways, um, hi Art. Oh! <laughs> he, he used to play in a band with my son. And um, yeah, so it's really good to see him. It's really good to see him. Anyways, yeah, I do know people. <laughs> Um, let's see, um, I've been around the room since 1989, but my sobriety date is um, May 21st, 2020. So that goes to tell you that I've had to go back out there a few times. Um, I had uh, two and a half years when I first came in, and then I found him, <laughs> and that changed everything for me. And uh, uh, we ended up staying together though for 23 years actually. But um, a lot of crazy times. Uh, we were both alcoholics. But um, I ended up running from California and moving to Indiana. And I found a new life there. Um, and I got sober for 10 years. Um, and I share about this because I want people, to, I, it's important for me to people, for people to realize that if you don't go to meetings, if you don't work the steps, if you don't be of service, um, number one, God in your life, recovery, number two, for sure. Um, you know, you, 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 you have a chance of, of not staying. And um, that's what happened to me when I had that 10 years. I got totally involved in so many other things and um, my, my recovery ended up being second or third, <laughs> probably fourth <laughs> if I think about it. You know, um, the job became more important. I was doing a parenting class in prison. Um, I was involved in uh, an anniversary for NA, and then my father-in-law got sick, and he was dying of cancer, and I was the one that had to, that got to take care of him. But um, anyways, uh, to, you know, everything came before my recovery. So um, my husband and I moved back to California, um, sold our house. You know, we had those, those 10 years. We got the house. We had a couple new cars. You know, we got all that stuff that didn't really matter. You know, none of that stuff really mattered. And we came back to California, let go of everything, lost a lot of stuff. And um, he ended up in 2012 passing away from this disease. And um, I chose to keep on playing around for a little while. So um, I would like to say it's because he passed away, but that's not true. Because I was already, you know, I'm an alcoholic. What can I say? I'm an alcoholic. And um, that's what I know. That's what I know is drinking. Um, I uh, am really involved in my program today. I do Zoom meetings. I go to, I don't know how many meetings during the week. I have wonderful, wonderful friends. A lot of them um, have a lot of time. And, and um, I learn from newcomers and the old timers. But what I listen from the old timers is they're still at meetings they're still working the program. They're still um, putting their higher power first, you know? And um, I forgot your name, but I like what you said about uh, not, not thinking, you know, your head, just forgetting about your head and your thoughts. 
you know, and because I have to mess this up really bad, at least it does for me. Um, anyways, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> Don't you dare say it. <laughs> Hank is a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. He has really helped me with my recovery a lot. Um, between him and my sponsor and um, some other women that I, I'm really close to in the program. That, that's my life. I mean, I don't even, I don't can't even think if I have, I have family members at party, you know, but um, my friends are all in AA today. And um, I like it that way because, you know, I know what they're about. They know what I'm about. I can be honest and upfront. I'm, I'm a pretty open person, you know, um, there's not a lot of things in my life that um, I don't share about if it's needed. You know, I don't sit here and say, oh, I did this and I did that and this and that, and, you know, but um, if it's needed to help somebody, I will share it. So um, I don't even know what else to say. I'm grateful to be here. I'm glad Hank asked me to do this, kind of. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I did want to share something else. You know, I, I, my kids were the ones that 12-stepped me coming back into the room this time. And my son flew from Texas, and my daughter lived in Fontana, and they came to my apartment. And they saw me in recovery. They know what, they know what mom's like. And um, it was during the time that my older sister passed away, and um, I came real close to dying right along with it. So they came and talked to me. The one thing that is so important in my life today is my children, my grandchildren. And the best thing about it is they want to be with me. You know, they enjoy who I am today. And um, there was a time that wasn't true, you know? So I'm just grateful for all the things that my higher power has given me in this the rooms and the people. And, um, you know, I know what some people were like when they were out there. And um, God, it's so much easier to just stay. Just stay. Well, I lived in Las Vegas for about a year. That's one of the things they say when um, we're done with the uh, Lord's Prayer, or the um, uh, Serenity Prayer. Stay. They don't say anything else. Just stay. And I, I like that a lot because that's the best thing that we can do. Is it's no better out there. And um, I'm, you know, I don't know how come. Well, I do too, too know how come God saved me. He saved me because I had more work to do, and that work is. Uh, helping other people, you know, um, and, and my higher power working these steps, uh, honestly and wholeheartedly with everything I have, um, has made it to where I can work with other people and help other people. And, and that's perfect for me. I, I love it. I love AA. I, um, I, at any time I go into a meeting, I'm at home. No, if I know you or not, I'm at home. You know, I go to Vegas and I see all my friends there that I got to know, and then, and then here I just run into people all over the place. And um, anyways, thank you for calling on me. And Hank, can't wait to hear his, his speech. Hank, <laughs> next will be Hank. Thank you. All right, Hank. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a group. Huh? My name is Hank, and I am an alcoholic. Hey, Becky. You got me adjusted? Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> 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 I am an alcoholic. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love being sober. 
through the grace of a loving God and a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had the necessity to put any alcohol or other chemicals in my body since that affected me from the shoulders up uh, since December the 21st of 1982. And for that, I'm just immensely grateful. Uh, I came bouncing into AA, you know, thoroughly beat, thoroughly beat. Uh, and um, I'd like, before I get too far into, you know, how it used to be like, uh, I'd like to share, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s. And uh, I got kicked out of high school when I was 16 years old. And uh, I went off, I've been on my own ever since I was 16. And uh, uh, I used to hang out with a bunch of guys that were similarly discontent and lonely and frightened. And uh, we grew up in the 60s. and. Um, the love generation, if, you know, some, some say if you remember the 60s, you, you didn't live them. And, uh, but uh, I, um, uh, I grew up, uh, I used to, I used to have a, a I weighed 140 pounds and uh, I had a goatee and uh, they used to call me the professor. And uh, we would just kick back and, uh, you know, contemplate the meaning of life and, uh, and uh, you know, just do all the things we used to do. And um, I'll never forget one time I, I had taken up residence at the age of 16 with a friend of mine uh, in a little duplex up in La Crescenta. Some of you probably know where La Crescenta is, up in the foothills, and uh, on a street called Dunsmore Street. And right across the street was this ominous, weird building. I mean, it had no sign on it. There wasn't a cross or anything on it. It led you to believe it was a church. But people would just show up in droves, you know, throughout the week, and they would take all the parking in the street, and guys were hugging guys, and girls were hugging girls, and, and it was just baffling to me. And, uh, and this one particular Friday, I had been up for seven days without sleep, and uh, I... You know, was taking some uh, some acid, and, uh, smoking a joint, and, and drinking some uh, Ripple wine. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I, I, w I was sitting on my living room sofa, which was the front seat of a '55 Chevrolet, and, uh, and I, I had a Rolling Stones Aftermath album on the, the stereo. And uh, I had a color wheel in the living room that was rotating and just changing the colors in the room. And uh, I would just kick back. And uh, there was a knock on the door. And it was my brother Stan. Stan, uh, you know, was one year older than me. And he used to hang out with, uh, with the sports guys, the jocks. I was hanging around with the, uh, with the other guys. He used to play football. We played football, but we didn't need any of the equipment. You know, we just broke our legs and stuff. And, uh, but. Um, Stan knocked on my door just to check in on me, and uh, about the same time Stan showed up at the door, I looked outside, and those people were showing up across the street, you know, and, and I go, Stan, man, what is that across the street, man? I, it baffled me, and he says, and he knew. He says, oh, that's, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're, I hand him the joint, man, and we take a couple of hits off this joint, and I give him his own tumbler of ripple wine, iced, and, and you know, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're contemplating what's going on over there, and 
everybody filtered in and they closed the doors behind us and we decided we're going to go over across the street and find out what they're doing in there and this was a memory that stuck with me for over well over 20 years before i got into you know the program and uh, i remember sitting on a rock right outside the building and uh, i was listening through the wall smoking this joint and drinking this wine and Stan was there, I passed the joint to Stan, and I remember with clarity as if it was yesterday, there was a lady speaking on the other side of this wall, and she said something that just threw me back, and she said, I wanted to commit suicide, but I didn't want to make a mess. And everybody in that building bro broke out and roared in laughter. And I go, wow, man, that heavy. <laughs> and, uh, and Stan looked at me and I looked at him and we go, wow, man. And I remembered it to the day I walked in. And I, I remember December the 21st of 1982, I had a yellow glow and uh, I had the, I was coming down off a lot of stuff. I'd been going for a few weeks and that, uh, you know, I, uh, I got sober the four days before Christmas, and uh, I, um, I had left uh, two weeks prior to the day I found sobriety and borrowed $1,000 to go Christmas shopping, and, uh, and uh, I have four beautiful kids, four beautiful children. They're all 11 months apart. I married a beautiful Latina from Culiacan, uh, Sinaloa, you know, and uh, I was the only gabacho in the family, and, uh, you know, at, for the, at that time, now there's, we've infiltrated more, and, uh, but uh, I, uh, those same kids, you know, I abandoned them, you know, for five years of their life. My youngest was three weeks old when I went to Teresa and told her that I was going to be leaving her, and I ran off with another woman. And I wasn't to have the privilege to see those kids for five years of their life. Somehow, some way, Teresa allowed me to come back into her life, into those kids' lives. And I don't know why. I don't know why. And um, uh, but I still had a lot more, you know, pain to throw out. And uh, uh, and I went. I was going to get on everybody's good graces just before I got, I found sobriety, and uh, I borrowed a thousand dollars, and I. I told the kids, uh, get a piece of paper, write down 10 things you think you might want for Christmas, and I'm going to go Christmas shopping. And, uh, and I'll pick out a couple of things that I could buy, you know, with the money that I had. And, um, and so I left on a Saturday morning to go Christmas shopping, and there was one big problem. Uh, I left too early, the stores hadn't opened, and I just stopped by the bar to have one drink. <laughs> and just one drink. And, uh, uh, two weeks later, I, that was on no, December the 7th, and two weeks later, I'm waking up in the back seat of my car, and a little body opens up one day and, uh, at, a, at a bar that I was at the night before, and I'm reaching into my pockets and trying to find the keys to my car, and I couldn't find my keys. and. Uh, uh, Juan, the owner of the bar, he had took the keys away from me the night before because uh, he didn't want me driving in my condition and, uh, and told me to go into the car and just sleep it off. And uh, 
And when I woke up and early in the morning, I looked out over the top of the window of the car and the cleaning crew was coming in to clean up the bar after the night before. And uh, my head was saying, God, if I can just get in there and get one down, I'll be all right. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be good, you know. You know, and uh, I can just get one down. And when Juan came up to my car and he knocked on the window and he held out my keys. And uh, I'm reaching in my pockets to, you know, find a few dollars to go inside the bar and get a drink and didn't have any money left. The money was gone. And I reached in my back pocket and what did I pull out was those four lists from those kids that they gave me, the things they wanted for Christmas. And I will never forget that that feeling that overwhelmed me when I looked at those lists and knew that I never bought one present. And I was to go home that morning and I walked into a house and saw four kids looking up at me. They didn't say a word. Their eyes just said it all. Their eyes said it all. My wife, Teresa, she looked at me and the eyes said it. They said, why did you even come back? Why did you come back to us? And um, I slumped down into a, a, a reclining chair in the living room, and uh, nobody was coming up and hugging me or greeting me. And uh, for some reason, a lady's uh, face entered my mind, and, uh, and her name was Kathy. And Kathy ultimately became the Eskimo that brought me to my first meeting on December the 21st. And uh, I decided, uh, I went to the refrigerator and I started to open a bottle of beer. And uh, I called Kathy and uh, I says, I talked to her for 30 minutes and never told her the reason why I was calling. And just about the time we were ready to hang up, I said, Kathy, I haven't drank today. And she said, Hank, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. We have a meeting tonight, a Wednesday night newcomers meeting. Come and join me. Come and join me. I guess those are the words that this man needed to hear at that point in time. You know, you can't do it by yourself. And uh, I pull into the parking lot of the 502 Club here in Covino. I backed into the parking spot because where I grew up, man, you, you gotta gotta know who's coming and going man. you gotta know who's coming and going and uh, you, ha you have to have your back covered right and uh, I'm sitting there shaking and uh, my head is going like a squirrel cage man and I'm going crazy man I've been in and out of different different settings uh, hospital institutions man and none of them ever worked only because I was never there for the right reason I wasn't never there to get well I was there to get cleaned up a little bit, to get the habit down to affordable amount, you know, never to get clean, you know, never to get sober. And um, I told Kathy I hadn't drank today, and she talked me into meeting her at the 502 Club at 7 o'clock that evening. I backed into that parking spot, and I'm watching who's going in and who's coming out, and I'm trying to see anybody that I would drink with or get loaded with and I didn't see a person somehow some way I got lifted out of that car I got lifted out of that car full of fear shaken I don't want to be there 
And, but for some reason, I walk into that door, into that meeting, sat down next to Kathy, and I, we were at a, a row of tables, and I uh, was sitting there, and she saw my hand shaking, and, and she knew I couldn't get a cup of coffee, because at this point in my life, I'm shaking so bad, I, if I got a cup of coffee, I couldn't get it up to my mouth without spilling it all over myself, because I was shaking so bad. She put her hand on top of mine, and she said, Hank, you're home, you're safe. You never have to feel the way you're feeling again. And I don't know why, but I remember looking up at the, at the end of the room. There was a podium up at the end of the room. And I don't know if any of you ever saw it, but uh, I, for some reason, I don't know why it popped into my brain, but. I remembered a movie I watched that was, I think, done in the 50s called The Days of Wine and Roses. And I remember that movie. And I remember there was an AA meeting in that movie, and there was a man that got up to a podium and spoke. And I asked Kathy, I says, have you ever been up there and talked? And her response was, is, Hank, you stick around here long enough, and you're going to be up there. This was an hour meeting. I don't know a great deal of what went on in that meeting. I spent a whole hour thinking about what I'm going to tell you. And, uh, and my head had me convinced that, you know, wait till these people hear your story now. Wait till they hear it. They're going to, you're going to be standing up there at that podium and watch their mouths just drop to the floor and off. And whoever runs this organization is going to come up and ask you to write a book on your life. <laughs> Forty years later, nobody's asking you to write a book. <laughs> Today, I'm just a drunk amongst drunks. Moving ahead, I, you know, about, um, uh, about 90, 120 days into my... Uh, I gave God 30 days. I gave him a, uh, you know, an agreement that if he could just keep me sober, for 30 days, you know, I could get on the good graces of the kids and the wife, and everybody would know that I'm trying to straighten out. And uh, I met a man, you know, that was ultimately to change my life in a way that I had no comprehension of how it was going to happen or when it was, how it was going to transpire. And I still to this day know that it was uh, one of my first spiritual experiences in this program. Uh, Kathy took me over to introduce me to a man we used to affectionately call Waterfront Mac. Waterfront Mac became my sponsor for the next 29 years before his passing. He took me into the adventure of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to where I was to uncover, discover, and discard the man that I almost killed, the innocent man, me, that I almost killed. See, I had the one day at a, a time concept down way before I got to AA. The only difference is, is I was killing myself one day at a time. AA was talking about living one day at a time and learning a whole new way to live. Not to die, but to live, to change my life. And uh, it took me a while. I was a, a two-stepper early on in my sobriety. Uh, you know, I. You know, I don't know about any of you, but where I grew up, man, when I read those steps and, you know, I read them to myself, I go, 
just four steps then, uh, you know, a thorough moral inventory of yourself, and then you go to five and you share your, your innermost secrets with another human being. I don't know about any of you, but where I grew up, you don't give up anything. You just don't give up anything. We used to affectionately say, you hold your mud. You hold your mud. You know, you don't talk about, you don't tell anybody anything about yourself like that. Mac took me aside one day and he says, uh, uh, you've been around with us for a while now. How are you doing on your steps? And, uh, and uh, I was uh, feeling so good. I was going over to the bars I used to uh, work in and, uh, and hang out in and trying to 12-step people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> they would pat me on the back. You're doing good, Hank. You know, <laughs> do whatever you keep do, keep doing what you're doing, man. But they weren't interested in coming to me to a meeting, you know. And uh, and Mac took me aside one day and he says, Hank, you know, you're spending your whole life trying to think yourself into sobriety. You're trying to think yourself into sobriety. The miracle occurs when you accept this program and you accept the steps that become the recovery for you and your life today. I was taught that meetings are essential for us. I, I need AA meetings today more than I ever needed AA meetings in the past. Today, I'm over 40 years clean and sober, but I need meetings and I need AA today more than I did when I was new because there's challenges that come up in our lives and adversities that we have to deal with from time to time. And AA has taught me a way through anything, 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 you know? And um, Mac told me the story about riding around in a station wagon. I was riding around and he said, you're riding around in this station wagon all your life, man. And all these things you've been doing to others, to yourself and to, you know, the people around you and the people who love you, you throw all those things in the back of the station wagon and you just keep driving through life. You just keep driving. You come bouncing into AA, you slam on the brakes, and all that stuff in the back of that car that you've been throwing back there comes up and joins you in the front seat. If you don't have the steps in your life, you're gonna find stuff on the front seat of that car that's going to make you drink. You need a home group, you need a sponsor, you need, you need to be working these steps in their designed order. And hence, at that point, I got honest with myself and I found the importance that the recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous is not necessarily in the meetings that I make. They're very important, but it's in the steps that I take instead of the meetings I make. Now, I go to big book study, I study. I'm a, I'm a student of Alcoholics Anonymous today. I keep learning this program day in and day out, and God has a way of teaching me something new on a regular basis. Uh, Mac got me into, you know, the, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Step 12, you know, at the very end, it says, have, you know, we practice these principles in all of our affairs. What are the principles? What are the principles? What are you talking about? What principles? And, uh, you know, and then I, I, I started learning about the principles of the recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first 
step, the principle is honesty. I had to get honest with myself for the first time in my life. And the byproduct of getting honest with myself was I became teachable. Some people have a hard time with the second half of the first step, uh, the manageability of their lives. Maybe they're making a lot of money, they have good businesses. But do you, can you manage your obsession to drink after you take the first drink? I couldn't. My life was totally unmanageable. I got, I got through step one well, and then I was moving into step, uh, step two, the principle being hope. Hope, you find in AA meetings. You know, how do we find hope in AA meetings? H-O-P-E, hearing other people's experiences and identifying with the insanity that they went through and how, that, how it affected them and affected you and the loved ones that are around you. And uh, it was hope on the horizon that something good could happen. And uh, step three, I, I found faith. I started to build a foundation of faith in my life that I had never had before. The principle of step three turning my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. If I hadn't done, I'm of the firm, firm belief that if I hadn't done a thorough third step, I could have never developed the courage, the principle of step four, to get into my inventory and do an inventory and take a look at myself for the first time in my life. I had to get honest with myself. Mac told me, because I expressed my concern about the fifth step, and, uh, and he said, do your fourth step as if you're never gonna share it with anybody. Just do it as if you're never gonna share it with anybody. And you'll find the courage, you'll find the way, and you work with it, your sponsor, and you get to it. Uh, somehow in step five, the principle becomes integrity where you actually share about who you really are with another human being. It talks about it in our book. It's, it's a time when we get at one with God and other humans, other, be, other people. We get at one with everybody we're with, our families and everything. And today, probably the most two important steps in my life today that I focus on day in and day out the major source of all my problems lie primarily in steps six and seven. The, some call it the forgotten steps. The principle of step six is willingness. I had to get willing for the first time in my life to ask, become ready to have a higher power of my understanding remove all my defects of character. And you know, my, my head is saying, God, if he removes all these my defects of character. I'm not going to have any character left, man. And uh, you know, and uh, I, I, I have character defects that I thought were pretty good attributes, man. <laughs> but um, step six and seven, if you know, step seven, uh, you know, is humility is the principle of seven. But I had to get willing to get humble, and uh, you know, and ask ask God to remove all my shortcomings. For me, in my understanding, and that's all I have here to share with you, is that the step six and seven are the source of my problems to the extent that I could never have ever had a spiritual awakening of any kind, of any sort. I had to uncover 
these character defects within me that I've lived with all my life and my shortcomings that separate me from other people before I could clean up the wreckage of the past. And then and when we get in that, that step seven, that step, you know, I mean, step, uh, step eight, where we make a list of all the people we'd harm, we exhibit some brotherly love. Brotherly love, putting down on pen to paper and writing down all those people that I've hurt in my life. What an order, what an order. I've done damage in every area of my life to people. Many of us have. And I had to put it down on paper and look at the, all these people that I had harmed. And nine, I had to give justice, justice to all those people that I had harmed and set things morally right with my family, my, my mother, my father, and everybody that loved and that I abandoned early on. Uh, I had to go to those four kids and I asked Mac one day, I said, Mac, I says, uh, how am I ever going to repay the time that I stole from these children? I stole five years of their life. My oldest kids remembered the insanity more than the youngest, but because uh, the youngest were very small. When I came back into their life, the two youngest ones didn't even know who I was. The two older ones knew who I was, but uh, the two, my youngest was three weeks old when I left. And, um, and uh, you know, so I, I had to go to each one of them and, and tell them each one, you know, that, and Mac told me, he says, you can't repay the time that you stole from them. It starts with giving them a sober father. That's where it starts. Today, I get to do a continued living amends with my children and my family. Uh, my children now are all in their 50s. Now I have seven grandchildren that have never seen Papa drunk or loaded, never seen that, that devilish character that can come out at the drop of an alcoholic moment, you know. And, uh, you know, I call them alcoholic episodes, and, uh, and they just happen just like that, you know. And I can be, everything's going great, just like that, my head will just flip out, man. And, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've had to go through one of those episodes. And uh, one day my youngest son, Mark, came up to me and he's heard me, all my kids have been to places where I've been fortunate enough to share. And uh, he's, he came up to me and he, I shared from the podium that, um, that uh, you know, I, uh, I shared from the podium that that Christmas, December the 21st of 1981, was a very dismal Christmas. I, I hadn't bought any presents, and uh, I was going to meetings, and, uh, you know, and I was kind of distant from everybody. And he's, he's, he came up to me one day, and he said, Dad, he says, I want you to know something. And I go, what's that, son? And he says, you, you, you share from the podium that it was a dismal Christmas but I want you to know it was the best Christmas that we ever had because it was the first Christmas that you gave us a sober father. And it just changed my whole outlook on that area. Uh, that 110 pound non-drinker, my, my Teresa, what a saint that woman it was, man. And, uh, and I say was because uh, we lost her on July 21st of 2013 to a very freak, uh, you know, surgery that went wrong. And um, 
she had never been in the hospital but to deliver four kids and um, what a saint that was but we got to share 31 years of bliss in my sobriety together and we went places and did things together we went all around the world together and uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a life beyond my wildest drunken dreams there's a, several prayers that I love, and I, I, I share some of them on a daily basis with several friends, but there's one that I like, you know, that I say regularly to myself, and I actually have a tape on the, the monitor of my computer that, uh, and, you know, I, I ask God to give me the strength and the courage today to accept who I really am, uh, just to accept who I really am, and to not divert my... Uh, my interest, my time, and my energy into my character defects. And I ask God to give me that strength on a daily basis. Uh, that um, uh, that my oldest daughter, Linda, uh, she is the one that uh, for, God, I don't know, five, six, seven years of my sobriety, she never would even talk to me. She never would even talk to me. Uh, she hated me. She literally hated me because of the pain and agony of my disappearance early on in their life. And uh, I, I had to let her walk through that. And one day I'm in my office working away and uh, I pick up the telephone and on the other end of the, of the other end of the line there's a sobbing woman and I can't make out who the voice is that belongs to the crime until she said, Dad! And I go, Linda, what is the matter? She says, are you going to one of those AA meetings tonight? And I go, yes, honey, I am. Can I go with you? It's a program of attraction, not promotion. This November, one month from now, Linda will celebrate 26 years of sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a family disease. That brother Stan, that brother Stan that went off with the other crowd. Unfortunately, uh, when I, it was time for me to make amends to people, I, I found Stan out in Acton recovering from the grips of alcoholism. I brought him home and uh, tried to put a sign on, my, on the side of my car, Hank's Rescue Service, and, uh, you know, and I'm going to rescue my brother and I'm going to get him on the right path. And, and uh, I remember I uh, come home one day and uh, my neighbor comes over and he says, Hank, he says, uh, who is that in your doghouse? And uh, I said, I had a big doghouse and I had some large dogs. And, uh, and uh, I go out in the backyard, I look over the fence and there's these two feet hanging out of the doghouse. And I go, oh, that's my brother Stan. And he was in there sleeping with the dogs. And, uh, my wife says, uh, should we bring him in? I go, no, let him sleep it off. The next morning he was gone. A few hours later, there was a knock on the door. Stan was standing between two industry sheriffs. And the sheriff said, he says he lives here. And I go, yes, that's my brother. And I brought him in, we gave him some food. And Stan disappeared. He went out to Acton Rehab Center out in downtown LA. He, he put together nine months of sobriety there. And uh, Stan was a bush sleeper. He, would, he knew how much to drink before he would go out and fall into some bushes just to sleep off a drunk. 
uh, I shared, um, I didn't share about with you, uh, you know, ultimately that, you know, what led up to me getting sober, but I, on August the 1st of 1981, I, I got wheeled into Queen of the Valley Hospital. I had been on a run. I had been let go from a, a job. I, I had a very wonderful job down on Wilshire Boulevard in what they call the Miracle Mile. And uh, I was managing four uh, offices and had 140 people underneath, underneath me. But I, wasn't, I was drinking and I wasn't coming home at night for weeks at a time. And uh, uh, the, the chief executive officer of this corporation and the, and the committee called me into an office sitting around it round table uh, they um i had a black eye and it wasn't from a fight i was just a lady accidentally poked me in the eye with her nail and uh, my eye turned black and uh, but it was at a bar and uh, i knew that that 110 pound non-drink of teresa had called them and told them i wasn't coming home days and weeks at a time i knew she did this and uh, they gave me an ultimatum i had to I had to quit drinking on or off the job or I had to resign. And I stand here before you, an alcoholic in good standing. I decided to let them have their job. And, uh, and uh, they gave me a rather large severance check when I, and I walked out the door and my head is going, they absolutely do not have a clue of what they just did. I'm going to turn around and watch this building collapse behind me because they just don't know what they did. And I went on a run and I, 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 I was going from motel to motel and hanging around at some of the old places I used to hang out in. And uh, one morning, I, went, I, and I would walk, I would go into these motels man, in, a, in a suit and a tie so they think I was on a business trip. But I spend the whole day sitting in a motel room drinking a a bottle of tequila and uh, you know watching Gomer Pyle reruns and uh, you know and I'm drinking and smoking and doing all the stuff that I used to do and and I moved around every night because I didn't want them to find me and it wasn't until I ultimately got home and shared that with uh, with Teresa that she told me that nobody was looking <laughs> and, uh, and uh, but uh, I got home and uh, Terry wasn't home, the kids weren't home, and I came into an empty house. And uh, uh, I got home because uh, I started uh, vomiting blood. And it turned out that I had ruptured my esophagus from my stomach and I was drowning in my own blood. They wheeled me into Queen of the Valley Hospital where they were to pump 25 pints of blood into me when I went into the emergency room until I came out of surgery. I lost all vital signs twice and went into a coma for 10 days. They called Teresa and the family to come and see me if they wanted to because I'm near death. And, uh, and I rem all I remember was I my eyes opened up. There was two doctors standing at the end of the bed and they just, in, in astonishment, looked at each other and just shook their heads. And uh, they were, I found out later, they're just only to, uh, to verify the time of death. And uh, there was a priest putting ashes on my forehead, giving me my last rise. And Teresa leaned over to me when my eyes opened up and I, she gave me a hug and she gave me a, I love you, I love you. We've been praying for you.
And all I could do is whisper, because I had tubes and holes that didn't even exist when I went in. And I whispered to her, I still have something left to do, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I found it. I found it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I found the gift of being of service in step 12. I found the gift of having a spiritual awakening in step 11. I found the gift of doing a regular inventory myself in step 10. I learned that steps one through three, we give up. This is where we give up. One through three, we give up. Four through nine is where we clean up all the wreckage of the past. All the wreckage of the past. 10, 11, and 12 is where we learn to grow up for the first time in our lives. I can't tell anybody that's new or relatively new here. I can't tell you if you're new or relatively new that ultimately you're going to die and sit at the right hand of God. I can't tell you that for any degree of certainty. But I know this for a fact. I know it with every fiber of my body. If you come in here willing to get honest, be open-minded, together we can open up the gates of your hell and let you out. The very last paragraph on page 568 of our book says there's one more principle. There's another principle. And that principle will keep a man like me in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is contempt prior to investigation.